Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Shattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen and Michael Trout conclude their two-part discussion on his sixth video, They Took My Parents Away, Little Ones Affected by Incarceration Speak. All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchattock.org. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type Trout20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T in the number 20. This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has produced. So I would like to share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology, and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979. Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the, Associ the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six-hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience, and Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respected colleague and mentor. He's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far, and I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today. So here we go. This spring, sought-after speaker and trainer Karen Doyle Buckwalter and trauma-informed school specialist Josh Carlson are coming together for one-day workshops you won't want to miss. On May 1st in Denver, Colorado, and June 5th in Atlanta, Georgia, Lessons from the Toughest Kids features practical, evidence-based strategies for working with challenging children and adolescents. You'll experience engaging lecture, discussion, and role-play with proven strategies from over 25 years of working with some of the nation's most complex children. Go beyond theory and book knowledge with Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Josh Carlson, May 1st in Denver and June 5th in Atlanta. Tickets are on sale now. Visit tkcchattock.org or find us on Facebook. And what about Taj's story? Well, that one really tickled me. 
I, I found out about about it through uh, the mom who let me know about it uh, because she'd learned from her her mother, the grandmother who was taking care of the kids. And it's it sounds like a, a, a little thing on the, on the surface. And in fact, when this mom brought it up in group, she laughed as if it were, oh, you, you won't believe what silly thing my kids do. It's so funny. What the kids were doing is, and Taj was the little boy and had, had a slightly older sister. So I, Taj was probably four and his sister was maybe six or seven. And the sister, as it turns out, would shut him into closets and wouldn't let him out. And that's all that the mom told at first about the, the, at, at the group, that yes. she, about what they were doing at home. But the more questions I asked, the more I learned that it was more than that. The little girl also tried to put her brother into boxes and then she would close up the boxes. And that led to this, this uh, story that I wrote where the boy tells about the fact that my mom and my dad are all locked up in boxes or something far away. In other words, he's saying, I can't even picture this. I don't even know about it, but my sister puts me in boxes, so maybe it's like that. So my mom and dad are in a place like that, and they're in boxes. I wouldn't like to be locked up in a box. Though that's exactly where my grandma says I'm headed, if I don't be good. And then he tells the story of this game his sister plays, where she she shuts him in boxes and shuts him in closets and won't let him out, and he yells and yells, and he, he hopes that she never forgets that he's in there. He wonders if this game will ever be over. He says, I think about it in the night sometimes when I can't sleep. Sometimes in the night, and here it's obvious that he's talking about a dream, I'm the locker-upper guy. And sometimes I'm the one locked up. So in other words, he's trying to work out in the dream that sometimes he's in charge and sometimes he's not. And in one of his dreams, sometimes one of my parents is in there with me. Here's what would be cool. One of them is in there. And then I discover a secret way out. So I would be the one who got them out of their boxes. That will make me a superhero. And it would mean I don't have to worry so much about being bad. And just like grandma says, get put in there. I would already know the secret way out. No more boxes. Wow. So what I learned is that in children's play, far from the prison, uh, things were going on uh, that represented children's efforts to make sense of all this. Yes. Yes. Well, Michael, let's uh, also talk um, a little bit about Aveline. And that's one we're actually going to play for our listeners. But could you give a bit of background or context for this one before they hear it? This one grabbed my heart, I have to say, because it took 
uh, quite a while to figure it out. I just heard this story from Aveline's cousin. Um, Mom was still in the prison. Aveline had been in there with her. Uh, in fact, Aveline had been born in the prison. But as per, per the rules of the DOC, she had to be, um, she had to leave after two years. And she was then living with some, some other people. Um, and this cousin took her on an outing one day or took her across town or something. Anyway, it involved their being on a bus. And uh, the cousin then told me about this experience. And he didn't tell me about it as if it was, as if he understood it, of course. He was himself just, a, I think he was maybe an early teen. But I asked so many questions and began to piece together what I think was happening. Uh, because what, he, what the cousin saw on the bus is only that his little uh, cousin got up from the bench seat where they were sitting on the bus and went up to this lady. And the guy said, I don't know why he'd want to talk to her. She was a mess. She was grouchy and she just looked grungy and mean and maybe sad. I, I asked him that. I said, do you, do you think also sad or just mean? Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe sad too. So why he wondered would his cousin go over as a little tiny girl, three or four years old, and stand by this grouchy looking sad lady. And I said, did anything else happen? And he said, yeah, he, she put her hand on this lady's hand. And then for some reason, the lady started crying. And then uh, she said, Aveline, he said, Aveline just kept standing there. And then after a while, she came back and sat down next to me. And what I pieced together, I can't know, I can't know inside Aveline's mind, but yes. what I pieced together is that Aveline saw something in that lady's face that was very familiar. And oddly enough, I think this is a very subtle but incredibly important point about the representations that little kids do. I think Aveline saw that something that was not only familiar, but actually comforting to her. And at the next group meeting, after I'd heard this, I asked the group um, what they think their kids saw in their faces. Uh, she said, boy, we're a bunch of, and then they used some slang words and some cuss words to describe how, what a downer it is, even for these incarcerated women to look at each other because nobody smiles. Everybody's mad all the time and they're grouchy and they're about to bite your head off. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you think it's like for the kids who look at your faces all the time? What do you think they make of it? What did they say? Well, nobody knew because in a way it sounded like I was saying something critical of them. And I, I wasn't at all or critical of the atmosphere there. I was just trying to say, I wonder what they'll take away. And somebody in the group finally popped up with, maybe that's all they'll know. Oh, wow. Maybe that's what they started with, and that's all they'll know, mm. these grouchy people. Mm. And I think that's what Aveline was saying when she not only stood by that lady, but wouldn't leave and then put her hand on the lady's hand and evidently really moved the lady who, who according to the cousin, started crying. 
So, Aveline, listeners, this is her story. I guess I was born in a prison. But my mom did it. Now that I don't live in that place with my mom, I sort of look for people who have that look on their face. It makes me feel good. When people laugh all the time, or even value too much, it makes me nervous. But there was something about her that just made me feel peaceful. It made me feel close to my own mom. I was born in a prison. Some final comments related to Aveline's story you'd like to share. Uh, Nothing that pulls it all together real neatly and shows us a rosy ending. Um, People are often very touched by Aveline. I don't know why. I I think maybe people are able to picture her standing there on the bus and maybe they're touched by what it would feel like to be touched by a little girl who's a stranger like that. I don't know, but this, this moves people. And they then want to know what happened to her or did she get out of it? Meaning, did she start liking happy people or smiling Hmm. people? And I said, well, I don't know, first of all, but I don't think we can expect that. And then um, we talk a little bit about the, the, what I think is one of the most important points about these little children of loss and trauma. And that is the, the course of their representations the representation of what is going on around them, their representation of why, for example, people are grouchy, or their representation of what what their own what is happening inside of them. And I I think it's very important to notice that these are not bad, these representations. If a little girl grows up thinking that most grown-ups are sad, and so she likes to be around sad people because that's all she's ever been around is lots of sad people. I don't think we should wring our hands about that. We should just be incredibly amazed that children work so hard to figure stuff out and find a way to move in the world that works for them. I mean, Aveline just flat out would, she says it herself in the film, I think, it makes her nervous to be around smiley people, happy people, people who laugh all the time. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't wring our hands or say, oh, my God, what a horrible thing for her. We should just say, boy, Aveline and probably all little kids of loss and trauma, including incarceration, sure do work hard to figure stuff out and figure out a way to be in the world. Yes. So, Michael, we, we want to wind down here um, with this uh, episode the, about <laughs> they took my parent away and the little ones affected by incarceration. And 
hear about what has been the reception of this and um, where you've spoke about it, how people have reacted to it, that sort of thing. Sure. It's not a happy story. Uh, maybe I could set the stage a little bit by reading a couple lines from the uh, introduction in the, in the booklet. Yes. Please don't make the mistake, please don't mistake the contents of this film as political statements. They're not, that's not my area. No position on incarceration or on criminal justice policy is taken or implied. My purpose is merely to provoke conversation and consideration about what happens to those left behind with respect to both life circumstances and internal emotional life. And it is to throw light into the dark corner where those left behind often find themselves. No matter how angry we are at those who commit crime, we must still face the fact that our efforts to punish, isolate or rehabilitate them do not happen in a vacuum. The little ones at home, whatever home then means, are watching, listening, and responding. We'll hear from these little ones again. My hope is that we might decide to hear them now. Mm. So that was my purpose, but I, it, writing that did not prepare me for how that would play out in audience response to watching the the film mm -hmm. which was mostly very defensive if not angry um denial in fact the the night i showed the film as a, at a big uh, social event um for the express purpose of, of piloting it and getting response a fellow stood up, he had been in jail himself when he was younger and his kids had, he had had kids at the time. And he said, I don't think none of that's true. My kids are fine. Mm. And one or another version of that was expressed often. Sometimes it was expressed simply in people having nothing whatsoever to say after listening and watching and, and listening to the voices of children that, are, for me, are very affectively evocative. And instead, the room was flat and silent. Um, I found child welfare to be generally not particularly interested in, what? The, in the film. I found uh, departments of correction not generally very interested. And when while that troubled me terribly, I went back to the introduction that I myself had written and said, you dummy, you, you said it right there. This is really, really, really going to be hard. These kids have been conveniently invisible to us forever. We went about the business, the, the important business of enforcing the law and putting bad guys in prison. Please do not saddle us with the additional burden of having to think about all the kids that these bad guys have at home and what's gonna to happen to them tomorrow and over the next many years. I can imagine if I were a cop or a Department of Correction official, I would look at this film and I'd, think, I'd say, damn you, I cannot do my job 
and pay attention to these voices at the same time. I, I really get, get that. So I found myself after a few times, um, never showing it in, in full again. I would simply pick one story at a time and sit with a, I, I made all the groups be very small and sit with no more than 25 and sit with those people afterward. And we would process what we just saw and heard and understood. And these are audiences of parents, these are audiences of DOC people and police, uh, but they're also child welfare people, very sophisticated clinicians, and it didn't matter. I had to do the same for just about all of them. The one exception you might be interested, I am, because I can't figure it out. I'm, it's going to bring me to tears, damn it. <laughs> the one exception is that I showed it in a very small room, no more than 30 or 40 people in New Zealand. And at the end, there were a, uh, maybe eight or 10 Maori people standing in the back of the room. And they did this thing that uh, those who understand the Maori civilization and culture know where they stamp their feet loudly and make uh, gesturing motions with their arms and they make a sound. It's very sudden and it can be to someone who doesn't know their culture, it can be shocking. You can think that they're accusing you of something or yelling at you or something, but it doesn't mean that as they were uh, able and willing to tell me right then. It means yes, mm. it means yes. That's the truth. Wow. And boy, I just never, ever, ever got over that affirmation. I don't think any amount of good white people finding it too difficult will ever overtake eight or 10 Maori people saying that's the truth and we're, we'll say it out loud because we know it to be true. We who for the last several hundred years have suffered losses and separations from our children ourselves. We know about this stuff. We know what it is to have your family broken up mm. and maybe never see your parents or your children again. Maybe that's why they have such wisdom. I don't know. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story, Michael. And thank you once again, for all your amazing contributions to our work and advancing us having a deeper understanding of the voice of invisible children, it's just meant so much to me and, and to so many others who have learned so much from you. Well, thanks. My hope is that maybe someday the voices of little children will just get real interesting to us yeah. as scientists and clinicians and child welfare people. Yes. Well, thank you for being here again today. And goodbye for now. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.